from Kurtco Media. This is Cars That Matter. Well, this is Robert Ross with Kurtco's Cars That Matter, and I'm here with Terry Cargus, virtually with Terry Cargus, Executive Director of the Peterson Automotive Museum. That's a name we've certainly heard for a long time, but this will be an opportunity to learn more about the organization and about what Terry's doing there to lead it. Welcome, Terry. Hi, thanks for the opportunity here. Well, I think it's a great conversation, and I wish I could be there at the museum with you, but as we're all presently working from our homes or abandoned offices, as it were. It's a different kind of conversation, but I think we can get just as close and as intimate with the cars as we might do if we were actually face-to-face and had some of those great machines in front of us. Terry, you've been with the museum since 2012, and you've obviously seen a lot of really interesting things happen. You've led the charge for complete re-envisioning and reopening that happened in 2015. But let's go back to the beginning, kind of the origin of the museum, when its founder, Bob, and his wife, Margie Peterson, actually envisioned this institution. Bob Peterson was on the board of the Natural History Museum here in town. And so was Bruce Meyer. And Bruce and Bob were also neighbors. The Natural History Museum had, I think, something like 60 cars and were thinking that they would open an automotive museum with their cars. And Bruce really was instrumental in convincing Mr. Peterson to make it the Peterson. Bob wrote a very big check, I think it was about $15 million initially, to get the museum funded and get it started. He also owned a building. He was a great entrepreneur. He owned the building here, which it had been a department store. So they opened it. It was a Cebu department store for two years, a Japanese high-end luxury store that didn't work. And then it closed. And some years later, Oshkosh came in. And I think they operated for about eight years. Mr. Peterson had purchased this building on the idea that it could move his headquarters here. But then he found There were no windows in it, and it wouldn't be good for writers and journalists in general. So he ended up moving down the street. But they opened in 94, June 11th of 94, to much fanfare. And Natural History Museum believed that this was going to be an enormous cash cow that they envisioned, I don't know how many hundred thousand people in attendance, but that didn't happen. And so museum was operated by natural history for about seven years. And finally, Mr. Peterson and the board didn't get along. Mr. Peterson actually spent another $25 million, took over the bonds to the museum so that he could own it outright. Then he set up the Peterson Museum Foundation and we became a sole enterprise or a nonprofit at the year 2000. Well, that's quite an arc for the institution and for what ultimately became probably the most important automotive museum, certainly in America, maybe the world. Bob was a real visionary. I mean, for those who are not old enough to know, I mean, he literally started a magazine publishing empire that was all about cars. I mean, his Hot Rod magazine started it all. And I think if it weren't for uh, Bob and his vision, the whole evolution of the automobile and automobile enthusiasts in America probably would not be what it is today. He really was instrumental in helping the the culture grow. He was an entrepreneur's entrepreneur. He had been a, a press guy, a media guy for the studios. And as the guys were returning from World War II, his job was taken back by somebody who had gone to war. And Bob was looking for things to do 
fellow named Madman Muntz hired Bob. Muntz was the first guy on television here in Los Angeles to sell appliances by screaming and yelling at the camera. <laughs> That's right. He had an idea to do a car show. He even had an idea for a car. I think they made a handful of those crazy things. In fact, we have one in restoration right now. Why am I not surprised? <laughs> Bob, to go promote the show, went to manufacturers of components, knowing that they would benefit from participating in the show by talking and selling their products to all the folks who came. What happened was that he put a booklet together, and then he discovered that the people he was talking to, they didn't have the ability to take pictures of their products. They didn't know how to write copy. So he started doing it for them. And essentially, all of the major pioneers in the world of hot rodding became advertisers. Because once Bob had the show completed, he said, wait, I have an idea here. So he went back, and thus was the beginning of Hot Rod Magazine. That's right. Isn't that an amazing story? And of course, some of those names are still around today. Edelbrock, Manifold, Craiger, Rims. I mean, it's all, as they say, history. And it's great stuff. Well, you know, Terry, you talked about how Bob and Bruce Meyer sort of envisioned the initial collection at the Natural History Museum. Bruce was on our show recently with his friend Bill Harlan. We had a great conversation. And of course, just about everybody in town and across the country and really around the world who's into cars knows the name of Bruce Meyer. But apart from Bruce, or in addition to Bruce, I know you've got a number of other real, I'd call it notable figures who are part of your museum board and members. Do you want to talk about some of the friends and fellas on that? The chairman of the museum for the years that we were developing the new museum was Peter Mullen, a highly successful collector of French cars and has his own museum up the road in Oxnard, the, the Mullen. That's right, in the Exodus Chandler space, an incredible achievement. David Sidoric, David was on the board when the museum opened in 94. David is vice chairman along with Bruce and Peter now. But David was the inspiration for the exterior, a lot of the remodel. What Bruce had turned 70, this is what Bruce shared with me. I turned 70 and I decided things needed to change. He mentioned and talked to David about it, who's his good friend. And David met an architect over in Italy that he spoke to at a show, brought him out here to the museum. They walked the museum and challenged the architect to come up with a design for the exterior, saying that we can't build a new building. That wouldn't happen in our lifetimes. We need to change the exterior, though, and it should represent speed and motion. And Gene Cohn from Cohn, Pedersen, Fox came back quickly, really, with a design that almost line for line is what you see in the exterior of the building today. Well, it is a remarkable solution for an architectural challenge that, as you say, would not have allowed the reconstruction of an entire building. Heaven knows the L.A. County Museum is in turmoil because of their proposed plans. But this was not only quick and effective, but it, it allowed the museum to continue doing what it did best, and that's be a showcase for cars. So the exterior looks like racetrack speed. It's an incredible vision. And inside, you've got an equally new and reimagined space to carry forth your program. And of course, a lot of great machines reside in the Peterson. And maybe we should talk about your collection holdings. I mean, I, I guess the most obvious question, Terry, how many cars and bikes have you got? Right in the neighborhood of about 300. There are the crown jewels, of course, that we have, and, and really starting with the round door rolls. That's right. And really our iconic car, 8,000 pound behemoth. But and that car really does have a round passenger and driver door. It's a two-door car, and they're round like giant portholes, yeah? The car was built to be a show winner. It was it was a 1925 Rolls 
that the owner at the time, a Belgian industrialist, decided, I need to win Concours. Of course, back then, Concours d'Elegance were for brand new designs. So it was a, a little bit of a different kind of game. It was like a fashion show almost. The, the car ended up in a, forgive the term, a boneyard in New Jersey. And some people painted it gold and toured it saying, get your picture taken for a dollar with the uh, Duke of Windsor's race car, if you can imagine, <laughs> and drove it around anything for a buck. But the Shaw Bugatti is one of the prettiest cars I've ever seen. That was a gift from the French government to the Prince of Persia on his wedding day. And then the Rita Hayworth-owned Cadillac Kia is, is a, a real thing of beauty. And then, of course, in terms of the car that most people are in love with is the XKSS, formerly owned twice, in fact, by Steve McQueen. That's right. That beautiful green predecessor of the XKE or the E-Type. And what a remarkable road car that was. What, they make like 20 of them or something, huh? I think this is one of 16 surviving cars. They were D-Jags that when Jag pulled out of racing, decided, well, we've got the car, let's build them as road cars. So they were built without the fin in back. But on this particular car, Von Dutch did the uh, dashboard on it. It's an all-star car. He owned it twice. Originally, white, but he sold it to Bill Hera because he was afraid of getting too many tickets and he was driving it fast on Mulholland every time he had an opportunity. And there was actually a standing offer from the sheriff at the time. Anybody who can nail McQueen in that Jag, it gets a steak dinner. Uh, <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. No, but what, from what we understand, nobody got the steak. So. That's, that's, that's great. Well, the car sure ended up in the right place because I know it's been one of my favorites for many, many years. So many substantial cars, including a lot of wonderful ones that fly a little more under the radar. Rimmer drives up at Pebble last year and Pin and Farina was showing their new creation, their new electric hypercar. And lo and behold, the Peterson's little Chisa Italia was there, maybe one of the most beautiful Pin and Farina designs in history. 1947 Chisa Italia. In fact, I'm, I'm sure you're aware that was the first car ever displayed in a museum. It was at the Guggenheim as a work of art. Yeah, it was definitely a game changer in the post-war automotive styling. And again, wonderful that it resides at the Peterson now. They're so incredibly rare and jewel-like. But then you've got a lot of jewels in your treasure chest there. You know, one of the questions that, that I think a lot of our audience would have is whether or not a lot of these cars are owned. But I presume a lot of cars are on loan as well so that you can really get a mix of exhibits happening. It's a good observation. Downstairs in the vault, we have over 250 cars on display, and we give guided tours through the vault daily. Well, you know, that vault has been, uh, that's, that's been kind of a legendary place. I mean, it's like King Tut's tomb. Archaeologist Howard Carter discovered it, and his assistant says, what do you see? And he turned around and he said, I see things, wonderful things. <laughs> well, you know, nobody used to be able to get into the vault. Now, all of a sudden, it's open to your guests. And, and certainly when we're through this current uh, lockdown scenario, it'll be open again. Can you tell us what's there, Terry? I'll help you with that. the story on the origins of that. When I came here, the vault was closed. And I came from the theme park entertainment business and the racing business. And I'd spent a career in racing and manufacturing, automotive manufacturing. But I was given a tour of the museum. At the time, we had two floors of cars. The first floor was a diorama, and nothing had changed for 20 years. I remember that. The floor had two major galleries, and those would change once a year. And the third floor was our offices and a kid's playground area because we didn't have the ability to get cars up there. 
So when I came, the second day I was here, I was given a tour by our marketing guy of the vault and tell me about these cars. So he started talking through the cars. This is Elvis Presley's Di Tommaso Pantera, the one that he famously shot. This is <laughs> this is this car. This is so and so's Rolls Royce. This is so. This is the Shagmobile from the Spy Who Shagged Me. Little Miss Sunshine was here, and on and on and on. And I'm thinking to myself. This is crazy. No one ever sees these cars. In a conversation with my predecessor, he said, "You're going to get a lot of requests to see the vault. It's not worth your time." I kept thinking to myself, "This is such a hidden treasure. It doesn't make any sense." So I thought, "Let's try over the Christmas holiday to see if people would actually pay extra to take a tour." And so we announced that we were going to open the vault for the Christmas holidays. And I went up and stayed in the admissions desk for two weeks there. We had people flying in from Chicago, from San Francisco, from all over the country, arriving almost breathlessly, saying, "I understand the vault is open. I got to see the vault. I've heard about the vault." And it became an instant hit. And obviously, we said, "No, we're going to continue this." And the most important part of the museum today. That's fantastic! What a great place to see hidden treasures and to really get a glimpse of what makes the Peterson tick. The cars that we own were probably in the collection about three hundred, another fifty motorcycles. Upstairs in the galleries, the galleries are curated to tell a specific story in each of our eleven galleries. Because of our reach and because of our fans and the members that we have, we can borrow any cars that we need that allow us to tell a story, a specific story. Almost all the cars upstairs are always on loan to us. That's fantastic, and a lot of them presume local as well, which makes things especially convenient when it comes to the logistics involved. Target-rich environment. Yes, indeed, it is. I guess Southern California is that. If it's anything about this place, it's cars and film. And what a great place for a car lover to be. You mentioned film, and I'm not sure if you've had a chance to see the current exhibit, the Hollywood Dream Cars. But there are 50 cars here in the museum from films, from Star Wars to Mad Max, you name it. The original Back to the Future cars here, the DeLorean. Wow, yeah, that's the cars that made their makers famous just by virtue of the fact that they appeared in these blockbusters. Right. That's incredible. Well, that is one of your great current exhibits. I know the museum under your aegis and with the infusion of considerable investment remodel that was well over a hundred million dollars. I understand that reopened in December of 2015. I was there. I was fortunate to actually be involved in designing an exhibit for one of your sponsors, Maserati, at the time. And it was quite a gala occasion, and I would never have imagined that the museum could have been transformed into something so fresh and vital with all the new exhibit spaces and the new exhibits. Interactivities for the kids. Can you kind of give us an overview of some of the breadth and scope of the new programming? To open the new museum and to reimagine the museum, we undertook a tour of 33 museums around the world to look at best practices, ideas, showcasing ideas, interactives. What kind of video examples might work? What kind of a theater presentation would work? And I guess that the first thing that we decided was that the cars need to be presented as art. So you'll see an, a large number of the cars throughout the museum presented on podiums as sculpture, rolling sculpture, if you will. But what we decided was the first floor would be a theme on art, and the second floor would be the industry, and the third floor would be history. Dividing up the galleries that way allowed us to go in and tell niche stories that then also change every year. 
as an example, right now in the Mullen Gallery, our largest gallery downstairs is the Hollywood Dream Machines exhibit. And next to it is Disruptors, which is two artists that are not necessarily automotive people, but have designed various modes of transportation in their own art form, in their own genre. Upstairs on the industrial floor, there's a motorcycle gallery, which is actually the Richard Varner Gallery. The Bobby Rahal Driving Simulator Room has 10 driving simulators next to it. The Charlie Nierberg Motorsports Gallery right now has an exhibit on the 30-year history of Chip Ganassi Racing. In the Bruce Meyer Gallery, across from those, is a collection that a guitarist from Metallica, James Hetfield, gave us 10 of his custom cars that he That's right. and just gave to us. Next to that is the Hot Rod Gallery, and we've got a couple of lowriders up there. I remember your lowrider show from about a year and a half ago that was really quite something. It really broke some ground. The opening of that exhibit was the largest month in attendance in our history. Phenomenal success. And what's amazing is that the whole lowrider culture is something that is foreign to most people. But again, if you were guys our age, you know, we grew up with those cars around us in, in high school and our friends' older brothers had them. And they were really a form of artistic expression that you had to see it to believe it. Well, Terry, let's hold that thought and come back in a moment after our break and pick it up talking about the Peterson Automotive Museum, some of its future programs, goals, and all the good stuff about becoming a member. Stay tuned. We'll be back soon. If you're like us, you're looking for a way to make stay at home a little more special. Well, we're going to let you in on our secret. Join Rob Vices to get luxury cocktail kits, toys, tools, tech, and other incredible items delivered straight to your home on a monthly basis. The value is incredible. Your first box is going to be a $400 tequila curation, and you can sign up for as little as 99 bucks a month. Use the code PODCAST, and you'll save an extra 50 bucks at sign up. So head to robvices.com to bring exciting experiences safely to your door. Remember, use the code PODCAST and go to robbvices.com. Well, I'm back with Terry Cargus, Executive Director at the Peterson Automotive Museum from afar. And soon enough, I hope I'll be back stomping the galleries of the Peterson personally. It's a great place to hang out. There's an awful lot to see. Thank you. Can't wait. We're on lockdown right now, obviously, and there's an awful lot going on behind the scenes, though. Keep things moving, and actually, we're enjoying some success with that. Well, that's great. Give you an opportunity to do a little housekeeping as well. I know that certainly the role of curator and your support team for the museum have got an awful lot of work that the public never even knows about. Maybe now's a good time. Tell us a little bit about your curatorial team. What does it take? Who gets these jobs? What's involved? Actually, it's first and foremost, you want to be passionate about cars and or a museum studies, museum activities. You want to be a great writer and you want to be a great researcher. Those are two fundamentals no matter where you come from. And we happen to be blessed with several of those folks. And I think that we've had good luck in finding a couple of folks right out of college. And we just brought someone in from New York who was there as a part of the city museum there. We just had a fellow join us that was at the Academy Museum across the street as our project director coordinator. And Brian Stevens, who's our head of the exhibition department, has been with us now. I think it's almost 14 years. He's a wonderful guy and a great planner. And so there's a collective. I think it's a passion for excellence is the other part. We've been awarded the world's best automotive museum, not because you know there aren't any other good museums, but because we tell a whole story about the automobile. 
we're not a brand or a singular type automobile. That's right. There are so many museums, especially in Europe, and well, of course, America too, that focus on brand-specific exhibits, obviously. Porsche, Mercedes, BMW, every mark has its own place to exhibit their, you know, their brand history. Me, one of the most amazing museums I ever visited was in Wolfsburg, where they had one dedicated just to Volkswagen vans, which was an incredible experience. But the great thing about the Peterson is that there is such a breadth of material in all the moving pieces that it requires to put those exhibits together. Obviously, bear fruit with such an incredible variety of cars and bikes. You showcased a lot of other talent at the museum, too. And one that really intrigued me was a remote studio that Art Center College of Design in Pasadena had opened at the Peterson. Can you talk about that, Terry? Sure. Peter Mullen is on the board at the Art Center, as is Charlie Nierberg, huge advocates. And of course, that's where the cars begin. You know, it's interesting. Toyota was the first company to open an advanced design studio here in Southern California. Now, virtually every major automotive manufacturer has a studio here in Southern California. That's right. And most of the folks running those studios are Art Center graduates. I think it's no exaggeration to say that Art Center's turned out more luminaries in the automotive design field, well, in industrial design across the board, but specifically automotive design than any other school in the world. Obviously, we all know Stuart Reed, eager to get him on the show. He's been uh, chairing that department for quite some time now. And, you know, under his aegis, any number of superstars have come out of that institution. Peter Mullen, when he's speaking, says that 80% of the cars on the road today have been designed by Art Center graduates. But Art Center was a natural in terms of the industry floor, the second floor of the museum. It was an opportunity for us to say, here is how cars are designed. And so we provided Art Center two large spaces for them to have a classroom, if you will, and a, and a workroom with computers with students in actually designing cars or motorcycles or automotive projects that they have signed or signed on to do for the school. And we do a number of other art classes or meetings in there for kids, younger kids now too, that we run. So, so explain how it works, Terry. Does a visitor get to come to the museum and actually see these art center students kind of look through the glass and watch them doing their thing? Do they get to interact with them? And it sounds like too, younger kids can actually get some hands-on experience. It's not a hands-on experience and unless we're doing something for the smaller children and then we'll do objects like help them design or draw. But on the actual design of the cars, there'll be a couple of students. There'll be students in there and they can walk into the studio and see what they're doing on their computers. It's intricate and it's fine work, but it's an exposure to, here's at least some of the information on what goes into the beginning of the designing a car. I think most people have no idea where it starts. You know, it used to be it was big drafting boards and or cocktail napkins with pen and ink. And now, of course, it's a much broader toolkit. You know, everything from CAD design to virtual reality. Amazing, amazing stuff. You know, everybody now talks about how the car collector hobby is, you know, fizzling out because young people don't care about cars. They only care about video games. And of course, we know that's not true, thankfully. What are you guys doing at the Peterson to sort of engage the kids? Actually, we spent about $3 million building what we call the Discovery Center for kids. And it's a room that has a mix of activities. There's a Lego track where you can build your own car with your own axles. And it's a gravity track. There's actually two of them. So the kids, you know, there's these large buckets of Lego parts. The kids build their own car and, and race them against their buddies. 
there's a mat where the kids can, for the little ones, can actually put something around. There's a track, a fiberglass track that's run these soft cars on. There's a go-kart that the kids sit for a photo up, and it's really cute. The kids walk in, look at this thing, and plop down in it immediately. They know it's for them. Honda gave us a couple of motorcycles for the kids to sit on for a photo op. There's a work table where the kids can actually take pencil to paper and colored pencils. There's a tracing table with all of the Pixar cars that the kids can trace out any of their favorite characters. There's a coloring table where you take your finger and it's like finger painting. You can drag various colors across the cars that are presented on the screen. So it's a whole mix of different activities that has been important to us, but that's only part of it. That's a room kids go into. We actually also fund at least 10,000 kids a year. We pay for the buses and bring them in for guided tours. But there's a total of 25,000 students that we brought in last year and guided tours by a docent. And it's all scheduled based on their age bracket. We have different curriculums for the different ages and the different classes. But actually, our education department is the largest department in the museum right now. This is fantastic. I mean, why would anybody go to Disneyland when they can go to the Peterson and kids there have more fun and learn something into the bargain? The second day I was here, I had so many different experiences. I mentioned earlier about my experience downstairs in the vault, but I was in front of what was then the Art Center exhibit, and there was a school tour with little toddlers. But what hit me was the kids were silent. They were straight as an arrow. Nobody was fidgeting as this fellow was designing. He was talking about, this is how you design a car. And I thought, what a marvelous experience. These kids are enraptured with this story. You look everywhere and all you see is cars outside. And yet these kids are paying enough attention so that it's a very special moment indeed. And I thought, wow, what a great opportunity. So we've gone from, say, eight to 10,000 kids a year over the past several years We're now at the 25,000 mark and obviously want to grow. What an incredible public service and obviously a little bit of an ulterior motive too. It's a great service to our hobby because you've got to get fresh recruits and there's nothing better than getting them interested young. I think every true car nut got interested when they were very, very young. Speaking of hands-on experiences, I guess for older kids, you'd mentioned some driving simulators and things too. How do your visitors use those? Those are free. We have 10 driving simulators. They're sponsored by Forza. They've been wonderful to work with. We've had some great experiences. You can go in, you choose eight different tracks to race on and from eight different cars. And it's open all day long as a part of your admission. This is unbelievable. I mean, there's supposed to be no such thing as a free lunch, but obviously in this case, there is. You know, part of our job is to look beyond 6060 Wilshire Boulevard. You know, we're 25 years old now. We've had our 25th anniversary. And one of the questions is, what do we do? Where do we go next? What are the opportunities? What are the responsibilities? Certainly, currently, we're looking and collecting the work that's being done by manufacturers right now on autonomous cars, electric cars. So we're working hard on that. But the other part is that we think also there's a potential in the future for virtual museums. So gathering that information, we've been hard at work building our collection. In fact, we acquired the original Peterson Publishing archives, 10 million photos. And with the help of SEMA and through a grant, we were able to digitize about a million, 250,000 of them. Good heavens. We're putting them up on the web at no cost, at no charge to have them available. And 
really is the automotive culture from the 40s through the 70s, and we're proud of that. What an incredible resource. So you're doing what the British Museum or the National Gallery in Washington, D.C. are doing with their fine art. I mean, making this accessible to scholars and just the general public around the world. Indeed, yeah. Indeed. You know, you, you talk about a virtual museum, though. I mean, now, obviously, with our current situation where people aren't leaving their homes and certainly no museums on the planet are open, it really forces proof of concept to sort of explore the whole virtual accessibility. Anything you're doing immediately that would pertain to that? We, you know, ironically, if we've wanted to build a channel, really, where we're putting up interesting videos, creating content that is enjoyable, but it's also educational and formative and something that people would want to see and share. Three weeks before the, the shutdown, the board approved us going ahead and starting to staff up so that we could build a channel. And in fact, we want to use the original Peterson Publishing brand to put this out. What a great tribute that would be. Well, it could not be a more fortuitous bit of timing there, and hopefully that will soon be just one more piece of the pie and not the only piece of the pie, which we're all relegated to at present. (laughs) One of the important parts about this, Robert, is that we have an audience that, and our visitors, about, let's say, 80% of our visitors come from within a 40-mile radius. 40 miles is our reach. So in looking at How do we become more successful? How do we continue to grow? If you're not growing, you're slowing down. How do we do that? And online and video and content, we believe, will allow us to do that. Another fun statistic out of all of this is that 50% of the viewers of all of our live streaming and the video content that we're producing is coming from outside the country. There you go. So it's not 40 miles, it's 4,000 or 8,000 miles away. Watching the high from Belgium, high from Australia, high from Africa, You know, all of that is really promising. We're quite pleased. Well, that's that is truly fascinating. Just as a as a little shout out to the organization, how does someone become a member of the museum? You know, just on the Bruce Meyer and the membership, we have a group called the Checkered Flag, which is our premium Checkered Flag Two Hundred. Checkered Flag Two Hundred. Bruce started at day one with guys like Phil Hill, Dan Gurney, Parnelli Jones. And has grown. And it was the checkered flag 200 because he thought, well, one day we might have as many as 200 members. <laughs> now. And the, the fun part of that, too, is that probably largest collection of the premier collectors in the world are checkered flag members. Now we have a checkered flag lifetime level that we've got over 50. We just started about a year and a half ago. There are individual memberships and there are family memberships. It's a a number of ways that are affordable, economical, and then the checkered flag is an opportunity monthly to get together and we go tour with our members private collections that you would otherwise never see. And it's breathtaking. I mean, it's, it's really a wonderful experience. Well, that's a great and privileged entree to the museum. And I presume folks who aren't quite ready to step up to that plate can also become supporters and can certainly join in some way. Indeed. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. A Moment of Your Time, a new podcast from Kurt Co. Media. Currently 21 years old, and today I felt like I'm magic read extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my spine. You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my dream. fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being it's questioned. It's going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies. Wonders to whom she should give the second device. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the one. The beauty of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in front of you. 
And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kirkco.com slash a moment of your time. Well, I'm back with Terry Cargus, Executive Director at the Peterson Automotive Museum. Terry, obviously, you didn't get into this because you wanted to run a business. You got into it because you know how to entertain people, and especially because you're a car person, too. Can we talk a little bit about what your personal interests are, the cars in your garage, some of your car stories, your first car? What gets you up in the morning? I was in the theme park entertainment business for 12 years. I was at Disney four years, SeaWorld four years, and Marine World up in San Francisco for four years. And at the end of the 12 years, I was burned out, and I didn't want to do it anymore at all. But I couldn't figure out what I wanted to do. And one night I was sitting on my front porch saying, Terry, you've got to come up with an idea. You've got to have a plan. You're wasting your life doing something that you're not enjoying. And I couldn't come up with the idea. What is it? What is it? And then it dawned on me that the only pictures I had ever had in my offices for all those years was of race cars. (laughs) And I thought, oh my God, it's right there. I started to think about it. And I remember being moved to the point where in 1955, we had just moved from Joliet, Illinois to Newport Beach. And in the summer, my dad took us to the Torrey Pines road races. Right. And I saw my first D-Jags. I smelled my first Castrol R. I saw exotic cars and people having fun. And you're on the bluff above the Pacific Ocean. It's summertime. And I'm thinking, boy, you're not in Kansas anymore here, Ace. But I remember leaving the track, pounding on my dad's back from the back seat. Dad, we've got to do this. We've got to do this. And then going to the opening of Riverside and watching the races there, all the varieties of cars racing all over Southern California. Nothing ever got me as excited about anything as cars. And growing up in Southern California in the late 50s and 60s, you've got drag racing in the streets. You've got drag racing at a number of different tracks. All of my pals were car guys. We went to every kind of a race. If there was a race, we were there. And if there wasn't, we were racing ourselves. (laughs) So that became the passion. Once I decided that that's what I wanted to do, the path wasn't clear, but let's say I kissed a lot of frogs on the way. I did a lot of things in the automotive business that I didn't enjoy that I found, well, this isn't what I want to be doing. This isn't how I want to contribute. It's like I bought a race car and found out quickly, I'm not as fast as I want to be or I should be. I'm not as wealthy as I need to be to race. at the. <laughs> that's right. And I don't want to be racing in amateur racing. I want to be with Mario and, and Al and, and all the guys. So I figured out what I know how to do that I might be able to pursue my dream in is raise money. So I started introducing myself to teams and I'll go find sponsors for you. And remember when Gallus Craco was with Bobby Rahal and Al Jr., I was able to help Dan Gurney put the Toyota program together. I had the pleasure of working with Chris Cord when he had the Chevy Monzas and we put Budweiser on the car. Jim Busby, we grew up with Buzz. I put Coors on his BMW. We brought that in. And that was Coors' first ever racing sponsorship. And the the fellow who was a friend of mine at Coors at the time said, it's the worst deal I ever made. (laughs) Why say that? You had great exposure. He said, Terry, the moment that Coors announced it was going to have a racing sponsorship, I had 3,000 proposals from racers from all over the world on my desk. 
I had Richard Petty flying in to see me. I had Roger Penske coming to see me. I had the whole world arriving at my doorstep. I couldn't get rid of you guys. <laughs> the rest is history, yeah. My history with cars is that I grew up as a Volkswagen guy in Southern California. My first car was a 53 split window, and then I had two 64 convertibles. I had four buses. Two of them were campers. had a square back, had a rabbit. Oh, man, you're serious. You're really a member of the VW religion. That's awesome. The air-cooled boys. The air, yeah. yeah. But my dream car was and became, the first time I saw a Porsche Speedster, I thought, okay, it's over. I know what love is. My dad had a 59 Porsche that I was 17 at the time, and he let me drive it every Friday night. I had it either Friday night or Saturday night, and I put a coat of polish on it every Saturday. Literally, I was possessed. We had the car for two days and drove up to Pasadena and had Roger Bursch put one of his exhausts on, <laughs> right, including right. the Stinger. But Porsche was the car for me. And my brother owned Beverly Porsche Audi at the time, and I bought a black Speedster, a 58 Speedster, and we went up and we turned it into a 100-point car. After I got the car out of the garage, I was driving home on the Santa Ana Freeway. We had the car 20 minutes and some guy rear-ended. Oh, I don't want to hear the story. Oh, everybody's worst nightmare. I crashed my dad's 59. There was an off-ramp from the Santa Ana Freeway to what was then Harbor Boulevard. There was an S-curve, and I was in the rain, and I thought, I got this. Lost the car, crashed the car. It was a... They'll do that. That Chick Iverson Volkswagen, a genius. Phil Emery and his dad were there, and they had to toss a coin to trash it or fix it. He put a front clip on that car. You couldn't tell it didn't come out of the factory. Brand new. <laughs> Those guys are artists. The day the car was done... I picked the car up and crashed it again. Oh, my God. The irony was that the guy in the tow truck who came to get me was the same guy who picked me up the first time, handed me four business cards, and he said, kid, hold on to these. You're going to need them. Oh, talk about Groundhog Day. Well, I hope you didn't need them again. No. But it sounds like the love affair with Porsche didn't end then. Not at all. We've been blessed. I've had some great cars, and I'm still a Volkswagen guy. I have two of them now. And I bought a 62 because I wanted my grandsons. I learned to drive in a 62, and I wanted them to learn how to drive a stick. Isn't that great? And then we bought a, and built a hot rod, a 67 hot rod with 150 horsepower. Man, that's a powerful little Volkswagen, considering they weigh only a little more than I do right about now. Not much of a collection, but fun. Oh, that's fantastic. I love it, and I can't disagree. I'm a real air-cooled fan myself. Imagine you're walking along the beach in Santa Monica or Malibu, and you see a bottle, and you pick it up, and, well, you know what's inside. There's a genie. I love to ask our guests this question because it kind of gives a little insight into the imagination. Genie pops out and says, you can have any three cars, Terry. What do you think they'd be? I'll never forget this. I was at the Hyatt Newporter at the time in the Newport Auto Show. I had a car that I was prepping. I'd, my first job, I owned a little detail shop, and I used to detail most of the Ferraris in Orange County. And I had a car there, and it was quite early in the morning. There was not a sound anywhere. And I heard way off in the distance a car going through the gears, happily or angrily, if you will. It was a GTO, a 250 GTO. Well, yeah. uh, and I'll never forget that. And we just had Chip Connors' GTO here in the museum and an exhibit called Seeing Red. That's right. That was a great exhibit. I don't know. It's such a beautiful car. So probably a GTO, the 250 GTO. Probably have to have a Testarossa in the mix. Is there a prettier car? 
Probably not. Those pontoon fenders, I mean, it really was an expression of beauty and speed, and yeah, there's nothing looks like it. Right. And the third car, you know, I'm still old school, air-cooled. I'm probably pretty happy with a Speedster. Yeah, a Speedster is iconic. There's nothing more pure and elemental than one of those little bathtubs turned upside down with that top down, or even with the top up, it looks mighty wicked, mighty special. Terry, this has been a great conversation. I sure appreciate the insight, not only into your own personal journey, but the vision and the direction behind Peterson Automotive Museum. It's a great institution, not just for Los Angeles, but for the entire world of the automobile, and can't wait to get back there. We've been blessed with a magnificent board. I think the management team over here and the staff are the best it's ever been it truly is a team sport, and I get a lot of credit for things that an awful lot of other people are doing, and we're so lucky that we have so many dedicated folks. I think we've got something very special to offer, and if you like cars, this is the place to be. Well, I'm raising my hand. I'll be down when the doors are open. I can't wait to see you in person. Thanks to my guest, Terry Cargus, Executive Director of the Peterson Automotive Museum in Los Angeles. Catch us for the next episode of Cars That Matter, where we talk about the passions that drive us, and the passions we drive. This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross. Produced by Chris Porter. Edited by A.J. Mosley. Sound engineering by Michael Kennedy. Theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick. Additional music and sound by Chris Porter. Please like subscribe, and share this podcast. I'm Robert Ross. Thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.